You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. Emerging markets have gone from investment frontier to the new growth opportunity, and countries once considered niche markets are suddenly quite mainstream. Front and center is India, a market full of superlatives, and for many global investors, it's at a tipping point too promising to ignore. Foreign capital is rushing into India in torrents, but is all the excitement just FOMO, fear of missing out, or is India's promise the real deal and worth the risk? Let's bring in Mark Mobius, founder of Mobius Capital Partners. He ran the Franklin Templeton Emerging Markets Group for more than three decades. Mark joins us from Chennai, India. Mark, a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you today. Hi, Mark. With 5% yield and some cash accounts and a strong US dollar, it's easy to overlook emerging markets. But is now the right time to revisit? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to justify being in equities when you can put your money in the bank and you have followed you get 4 or 5 to 10. So uh, it is sort of a great fucking sound, I think, in many directions uh, to go only to you have followed. Of course, people realize that from a longer-term perspective, you're not going to be able to get that 5% or 4% over the long term. Uh, maybe they'll lock it in for a few years, but it's obviously not going to work. And of course, markets will eventually come back. What we've learned over the many years we've been investing is that uh, high interest rates do not necessarily mean bad equity markets. There's so many other factors at work. So uh, our advice, yes, keep some cash and fix the bottles or make sure that you have that equity component, particularly in emerging markets, because emerging markets still are the fastest growing economies in the world, despite the fact that the index, the emerging market index, has not done well, and that was because of China. So, and that's for the reason why I'm in India. India's got the bright spot in emerging markets now. Yeah, Mark, you've spoken with great enthusiasm about India's investment prospects. It's home to some of your fund's biggest stakes. 20% of your portfolio is in India. Give us the elevator pitch. What's the attraction and why now? Well, another reason, first of all, India's the only population. Average age about 25, 26 compared to one China's 86, 37, number one. Number two, uh, the economy is growing at a foreign pace. Uh, we're talking about 6% real growth, which is uh, double that of China and more than that of the U.S. and other countries around the world. The third reason is you've got 1.2 billion. Well, in India has now surpassed the uh, population of China, uh, which now, by the way, estimated at about 8.9 billion. So you've got 1.2 billion potential customers. And then, uh, interestingly enough, for emerging markets, the technological revolution that we've seen with NPL and the net, with AI, with all these technological changes, is having a very favorable impact on India, the most young population. So all these factors put together, and by the way, I should not overlook, uh, it's a democratic country. A tremendously democracy, just like the U.S. is. But it's a democracy where free enterprise thrives. 
Yeah, and that was very important in my, in my point of view. And Mark, is uh, what do you think of the valuations? A lot's been said that you know valuations are not cheap in India. I think they're trading at twenty times price to earnings, significantly higher than the US at I think eighteen times, and almost triple of China. Do you feel it's priced in, or should we look beyond the headline numbers? Uh, it is priced in for the major companies. There are major companies, and don't forget, a lot of people quote that uh, twenty times the uh, of the index. You know, the index is uh, the largest companies. Uh, but when you go down to the middle and with back and the smaller tax companies, you'll find that the valuation is a lot more attractive. Nevertheless, I tend not to look at high earnings ratio or price to book. But look, I like to look at return uh, on capital. And one of the most interesting things about the Indian market like the Taiwan market, by the way, the return on capital is very, very good. Usually, you can find a lot of companies with return on capital, so return on assets over 20% or more. Uh, now, when you find companies like that, uh, usually there's no doubt that you've got in road that but high return capital on that earnings growth. The next combination is really powerful. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, no question that there will be corrections along the way, but India is still in the longer term that makes a lot of sales. Mark, you mentioned how important return on capital is when you make investment decisions in India. Um, we've heard that India is being ushered into the J.P. Morgan Emerging Markets Bond Index next year, which will give investors easier access to Indian bonds. Could this not structurally reduce India's cost of capital, and could that enhance its prospects for investment returns? Uh, yeah, that's a very, very interesting development. That uh, I've been advocating for India to issue many more bonds at the nationally, in of course, local currency, machine, not one billion dollars over the because it's a huge investment in a lot of overseas Indians. But the uh, Indian government had better release and loosen up uh, the restrictions on bows in and out of the country. Uh, but there's no question that if you get into the JP Morgan Index, uh, that will put a spotlight on Indian bonds. And it makes a lot of sense. India needs the capital, and they shouldn't have the capital. Where uh, and I think a pretty good track record in terms of paying uh, back and having a more stable bond exchange regime. So I think it's going to be very good for the country. Market, global investors always compare India to China. Some view India's gain as, I guess, you know, China's loss. Do you think this comparison is apt? Uh, not yet. I mean, India is much, much smaller than in China. Uh, no question about it. The problem, you know, that I need more some investors have is that so many of them are buying ETFs or index funds. And if you look at the emerging market index, it's been a disaster. And the reason why it's been a disaster is because of China. China represents about 30% of the index. And uh, China's been terrible. The market been terrible. Now, if you take out China and put the same weight for India, then the index looks terrific. So uh, the problem with India now is that it would be difficult for the very big international investors should put the same amount of money into India that they have 
put into China in the past. And probably that's one of the reasons why there's been a run-up in the Indian market. But a lot of these global investors are down on China, don't want to put anything in China, and they're trying to put in India, of course, that pushes the index up. I think there's a temporary phenomenon, and you'll probably see more and more Indian companies being listed in the me. But Mark, wouldn't you think India would be kind of a tough sell for investors who got stung in China and maybe Russia? Do you hear any pushback, or what objections do you hear? I haven't heard that yet. Interestingly enough, you've got a very good point. I mean, um, they've been stung badly with Russia, they've been stung badly with China, and uh, they're waiting for the next shoe to drop it. But I haven't heard that from anyone. Interestingly enough, I think probably because they see that India is a very democratic country, really an open stock society. And uh, the likelihood of what's happened in China and what's happened in Russia is probably low. So that, but but interesting economy, I think it's something that uh, people have not mentioned to me yet or may in the future. And Mark, you have no uh, problems getting your money out of India, right? I know it was quite well publicized that you had some issues in China. Yeah, I had trouble with like, getting money out of China. I had an account there that I had for many years because, uh, oh, it was less than about 15 years ago, I had an apartment in Shanghai, I sold it, and put the money into an account at HSBC. And uh, that I, 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 you know, it's not a matter of not getting it out, it's a matter of doing the paperwork, which prevents you from getting out. You know what I mean? And then they wanted a record going back from the very beginning all kinds of things. Luckily, uh, they woke up, uh, HSBC and also the government and, uh, they arranged things so I could get money out. So, uh, with the happy ending, I would be able to transfer the money from Shanghai HSBC to Hong Kong HSBC and all is well now, but it is an issue. Uh, now of course, if that's for individual investors or uh, institutional investors, once you get the permission from the government where you have all this paperwork done, then you're able to get money out. So that's a different ballgame. Mark, a couple of numbers you may already be familiar with. Sensex up almost 8% this year, assuming dividends are reinvested. SMID, the India Small Cap Index, up 10.3% year-to-date. And that has even more impressive average annual numbers on a 10-year basis. You mentioned GDP growth 7 to 8% a year. India's GDP was $468 billion in the year 2000. In 2021, $3.1 trillion. Some pretty astonishing numbers. They tell the growth story. Mark, how can individual investors, say in the U.S. or elsewhere, outside of India, get India exposure? Uh, right now, really, the only way is buying an ETF and buying. There are a few Indian stocks that are listed in London and the U.S. and ADR called a very few. Uh, and by the way, I'm in the same boat personally. You know, although my fund invests in India directly to what we have the custodial banks set up and all the paperwork done, but as an individual, uh, in addition to investing in my funds, the only way I can get exposure is by going into these ETFs and some individual stocks. So now, by the way, that's beginning to change because in one of the states, 
at the home state of Bodhi, uh, the Indian leader, uh, they are now setting up a system where uh, you can come in and invest individually in stocks. I'm still investigating that. So definitely there are signs of opening up so individuals can come in. At this stage, it's really only uh, index funds or ETFs. Mark, what are the, some of the downside risks of India? I know there's a perception that there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape to get business done, some question marks on infrastructure. Can you give us some insight into some of the potential downside risks? Well, uh, the, let's remember, I, I like to call India the United States of India because uh, these states in India are very uh, different from one from the other. The other day we were at an airport and I thought, uh, three languages being used, English, uh, Hindi, and the local Alago language. And this is so true of that there are 22 languages being used in India. So it's a very diverse operation, which is good in many ways, but not creativity. But at the same time, there are incredible centrifugal forces, you know. So very difficult to keep this all together, and it's and it's good. Uh, various uh, problems arising from uh, the independence of various states. And you know the situation of Bavinia stemming from what's happening again in India, where one area wants to be independent. So this would be one risk that I could envision. I would put that at relatively low priority because Modi has been getting successful in bringing these states to Guadalajara. You'll we'll brief, for example, on a common tax. Then in the past, if you went from one state to the other, you ever paying back, because if they lie, they've now unified that. But how can you accomplish All of that is ongoing. But I would say at the end of the day, if you ask me for risk, uh, that, that would be like, might be one of the risks if you want to change. Mark Mobius, you are speaking to us from Chennai, India. Talk a little bit about what you're hearing and seeing on the ground there. Maybe something about the business mood. I assume you've been speaking with business leaders, other entrepreneurs. What's the sense? What are they thinking right now? Would you sense it's cautious optimism? Is it more exuberance? Talk a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing. Well, you know, I've been uh, in four cities so far. I was in Mumbai. I was up north. Uh, in Florida City, you know, and uh, I feel a lot of optimism on the ground. The businessmen are very optimistic about the future. They're expanding and investing more and more. Uh, but, and I think that comes because of the usual violation. A young teacher tend to be optimistic if they all out. So uh, I'm getting a very positive view uh, here uh, because they have big, big contrast. Um, I'm here sitting at the Sheridan Hotel on the beach in Kenai, and it's a beautiful, modern, I mean, this hotel, and by the other hotels I visited, first class, uh, at a fraction of the price that you normally pull in U.S., Australia, and elsewhere. Uh, so it's a, there's a great feeling of optimism, and I think uh, this is going to follow through on the development of the country. Mark, that's quite a plug, uh, you know, at least from a travel and tourism perspective about India, and it does speak to your optimism. 
Uh, one question that I had, some of India's biggest companies have been prone to shocks. Uh, Adani comes to mind with that Hindenburg report some months ago. It has come under scrutiny on issues like accounting, transparency, corporate governance. Sounds like it's moved on, but at the risk of overgeneralizing, Mark Mobius, how does India, in your assessment, stack up against those metrics? What's the risk and how can investors mitigate it? Yeah, by the way, the Adani case is an interesting one because I frankly looked at it and couldn't figure out what Lindenberg was genuine because, you know, they say there was not that backing. Well, it was tremendous backing. It was pretty well known, for example, that the family was dealing in the shares and it was no big secret. So I think they, uh, with a big lit, a bit of a shake on the part of Lindenberg uh, in their report. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you've noticed that Adani is now making a deal with the U.S. government on the Indian River to do a port in Sri Lanka. So obviously, your company is still in pretty good shape. I'm not saying, I'm not recommending it as a to buy. I'm saying I'm not too happy with their debt. But nevertheless, I think that was the case, the truth, how you over doubt. However, we must remember this is an open society. It's a democracy, and you are going to have a lot of uh, problems with fraud. You know, look at the U.S., you know, with pretty FBX case. You're going to get that in India, just like you have in the U.S. But what I found is that it's really a pleasure to walk into a company in India and well, have been welcomed with English-speaking executives. But this is one of the things that's so advantageous. Uh, in China, if you walk in, uh, walk and you get a translator. Here, we walk in and you take your updates out and they will English. So this is a big, big difference. And this enables you to uncover what risks you may encounter and ask questions. And pretty open about that. Well, of course, we don't invest in any company that doesn't have We've let me good couple governments. And the way we find out it was I thought the woman visiting them. Mark, you made a good point on corporate governance. A lot of investors look at emerging markets through a broad brush, you know, on corporate governance. But is there a lot of difference between the individual markets? Uh, yeah, the language problem, of course, is one of the big issues. But more often than not, around the world, we found whether it's in uh, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Indonesia, Korea, Taiwan, wherever, we find English-speaking people that can translate and uh, tell us what's happening. And if we visit these companies and they're open to show us what they're doing. So that's one thing that ties all of these markets together. Generally speaking, if you're an investor, uh, you're going to get access. And if you don't, and if there's a maintenance, you will get access. Uh, you agree not to invest. You will not invest in such cases. So I found that the other dollars was not really that much different than what you'd find in the U.S. or Europe or anywhere else. And so it's a matter of the individual companies. An economist in India once told me that India's CPI, Consumer Price Index, can shift based solely on movements in the prices of onions. 
Now, that was a number of years ago. It may or may not still be true. But what does that tell you about India's economy and its growth runway? Well, you must remember that in a country like this with 1.2 billion people and the big majority now in rural areas, that's the reason why when you look at the Indian economy, they talk about the monsoon. You know, I always wonder, why, why are they so interested in the monsoon? Because monsoon determine what the crop yields will be, what the food output will be. And of course, onions is just one indication of that. And the CPI food is a very big component. And of course, spices, onions, and various other condiments are very important to the Indian diet. So additionally, points, I'm not sure what exactly the weighting Indians onions is, uh, but uh, I think it's probably needs to be high, but there are so many other components, particularly rice, on wheat. Uh, they have a lot of bread and about so forth. But with Must so be. many people in India um, being in rural areas, that may surprise some investors. Do you see India becoming more of an urban nation, much as China has become urbanized as it develops? It's happening as we speak. I mean, you can see that by the incredible building. Every city we visited, yeah, towering buildings going up, the house companies, the house people. And there's a big migration uh, from the rural areas into the cities, which is why, by the way, they've got an incredible infrastructure challenge. You know, they're not enough roads, not enough subways, not enough, uh, in fact, here, and now they have a big building program, and you have that in most of every other city in, in India. So that's a sign of you're getting this big movement from the rural areas to the cities. Mark, you left the U.S. at an early age, and you studied in Kyoto, Japan. From what I gather, you've lived in Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Hong Kong, Dubai, Singapore. I could be missing a few places. But is there a place that resonates with you on a personal level or possibly somewhere that you just had luck investing in? Uh, that's a very difficult question. A lot of people ask me that. And I, you know, I've had a lot of incredible positive experiences. You know, every of these markets that I've investing in would be amazing when you think about it. Um, I guess if you wanted to really focus on one Maybe Taiwan would be an example, because you have the best of Chinese culture, you have a democracy, you have an incredible ambitious workforce, uh, you have intelligent business people. So that might be one example, but I must say that uh, there's so many other examples that examples I can give you, uh, but that's just one that seems to stand out. And Mark Thanks. Mobius, re reflect a moment on your career, if you would. You're a true internationalist, and I mean that in the best of all possible terms. You've traveled extensively, and that's probably an understatement, but you've seen and you've come to understand our world in ways that many never get the opportunity to do. Looking back, what would you say have been some of the defining events and experiences that have shaped your investment career, and what would you do differently knowing what you know now? Well, thank you very much. The thing that really opened up the world for me was when I got a scholarship to study in Japan in the 1960s. 
um, that really opened my eyes to a completely different culture, a culture that was so different from what I experienced in the U.S. And I began to think, God, you know, there's a world out here that I don't know about. So as soon as you got bitten by the expat bug at a young age. Exactly. At a very young age, I went back to U.S., got my uh, PhD at MIT, and then set out for Japan again to work on survey research, uh, which, which meant interviewing people in Asia. We worked for companies like Avon and so forth. And then I went, lived in Korea at a time when Korea was really in bad shape. I mean, there's a good example of a country that went from nothing. I mean, when I was in Korea, people were so poor. Uh, it was really very something. Uh, the hills were better because the war had denoted the whole, whole country. Uh, now, if you go there, it's an incredible transformation. But uh, again, I lived in Ireland, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, so So this really opened my eyes. It was a life-changing experience for me. And I became a more well, expatriate. I decided to just be my life. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Our guest has been Mark Mobius of Mobius Capital Partners, joining us from Chennai, India. We've been talking India, investments, and a changing world with one of the great veteran investors of our time. Mark, it has been a pleasure having you as our guest, and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee, and this podcast was edited by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.